Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett and this good news later on. He's back. Is Duterte on the way out in the Philippines? I'll be speaking with Peter Murphy, a trade union and human rights activist. A demo on Friday against the far right. Not sure yet where it's going to be held, but keep watching and listening to find out where with Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. The final part of my interview with Chance Warland, US journalist and reporter. A gene ethics report for February with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. And politics Malaysian style with Keon Wong, who's a Malaysian journalist working in Sydney. And this is what we've been promising you for I reckon it must be five weeks. A week, Jane, listener, when... Well, it's been weeks, really, but in this case, a week when big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull announced he had found the solution to fossils frying our planet. Fossils, he pronounced, will solve the problem of fossils frying us. So effective a solution, he would utilise the Clean Energy Corporation Welfare Fund to fund coal-preventing coal wiping us out although he couldn't prevent one fossil from attempting to wipe out Malcolm himself, promoting the public funding of coal expansion, obviously not conservative enough for Corey St. Bernardi, but we divert. Note it's Clean Energy Fund, not Renewable Energy Fund. His Minister for Fossils, Josh Prydem Icebergs, put the odd critic who suggested expanding fossils to counter fossils mightn't quite be the solution of the year in her his place. But as Malcolm and Josh pointed out, we're talking clean fossils, clean coal. Well, cleaner coal, they conceded. Uh, then why not just fund more renewables that don't fossil pollute at all? The odd put in her his place critic criticked. Because, excuse me a moment, and at this point Malcolm interrupted the fossils lined up behind him with their drooling snouts moving to the trough. Why don't we just fund renewables that don't fossil pollute at all? For God's sake, Malcolm, isn't it obvious? Of course, sorry. Uh, sorry for that break, but it's obvious. On Corey's sad defection, and isn't it a disgrace that the government has swung so violently to the left that he was forced to take this admirably principled stand on behalf of all decent white troublewazzy racist sexist homophobes? The I miss that completely award of the week to, well, to me. First time I've picked up one of these cherished week that was awards. After Hayseed and Sheepshit Party MP George Christian Family Son said Corey's defection was down to Malcolm because Malcolm had, quote, abandoned conservative causes. Hence the award. I miss that completely. In the weeks that were bit, 
just as Malcolm was looking a bit sick, thanks to his health minister, who was looking politically very unhealthy, unlike her very healthy taxpayer-funded bank book, surprise, surprise, we suddenly found terrorists in our midst. Just another sheer coincidence when a diversion was very helpful indeed. But the bit I found fascinating, and it picked up the a touch unnecessary award of the break, was the woman outside caught in full burqa with but a couple of pupils, as in eye pupils, almost visible, who held up a newspaper to hide her face. And I thought, why, if you're wearing a full burqa, would you? Anyway, we'd send her her a touch unnecessary award, except... We've got no idea who she is, unless her name is Islamic Times, January 5, 2017. And as government scrambled to pick up aluminium giant Al Goa to the public purse's power bill, they use about 10% of total electricity after the previous contract expired and the plant coincidentally just happened to pack up and they'd have to close down and sadly let go all these workers they so care about unless the public came to the rescue. The public purse came to the rescue and good news, we're all paying their bill again. A win-win apart from all those welfare bludgers, that is, non-corporate welfare recipients, welfare bludgers whom some robot or computer has, has discovered have all been cheating the public purse big time. And the really clever bit is, those trying to contact the robot or computer who feel they just may not have been cheating can't get through, let alone the prospect of talking to a real human being. So their time for appeal runs out and now go raid the public purse and other non-bludging, non-cheating snouts in the recipients of corporate welfare live happily ever after. Although not so happy, the landed aristocracy with huge pastoral holdings around Shoalwater Bay up in arms metaphorically because those who are up in arms non-metaphorically, the train killer lot, plan to acquire their land, well with market forces compensation, to extend train killer exercises and accommodate Singapore train killers who will train to train kill here with our cream of true blue Aussie youth, young men and women in uniform, life of a party, love their families and dear little children, fun to be with trained killers. The metaphorical lot asking, how can people just come and take our land? Which is something they should know, given it's something the non-people who owned the land before we stole it, the terra nullius non-people, asked themselves time and again. Although that they can add, they weren't even compensated, but that's only because they are terra nullius and don't even exist. The terra nullius lot had the audacity, the arrogance, backed by their long-haired commie, wooden work in an iron, black armband acolytes like that, out-of-control, former caring business class party minister Ian McFarting, to claim our great national day, true blue Aussie day, is the product of some mythical invasion when we know his most gracious majesty authorised this small extension of England, their England.
Have these savages no respect for the crown which has done so much for them? Civilization and the dear baby Jesus for a start. Silly suggestions that the day was divisive, but Malcolm restored common sense on behalf of all common sense. Let's enjoy, let's appreciate the greatest country in the world people, asserting the day would not be changed because the date of invasion, the arrival of the first illegal, no proper papers, queue-jumping boat people, highlighted Trubler was his, quote, harmony and tolerance. We've got to wonder just what bit of the debates Malcolm missed, or worse, his powers of comprehension. Perhaps he's ingested too much of the depleted uranium turned loose by those trained killer exercises. On that, they're trained to kill the other, not themselves. This inquiry into the huge numbers of trained killer suicides, a psych described the measures that had been taken. I don't know if there's anything else that could be done, she said. And I thought, of course there is. The week that was solves the problem yet again. They could get rid of the whole train killer lot altogether and save trillions for non-killing purposes in the process. Now it's Her Most Gracious Majesty, of course, with big changes at the top as our leader, Her Most Gracious, announced she would lighten her workload this year by reducing the number of organisations of which she is patron. And at her age, we can understand and sympathise with that as patron is such an onerous and exhausting job, involving, as I see it, the back-breaking work of having your name stuck at the top of all this letterhead. Now... 229 years after those first illegal boat people we were hoping to get away with without reminding ourselves of the new US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor, but well, thanks to Donald, Malcolm's week just got worse and worse over non-illegal boat people with Donald asking, how come the US OB should assume the responsibility for True Wazzy's responsibility? Which, despite what we might think of Donald, isn't a bad question. Bad people, bad dudes. And while we're sympathising with Donald, his comment, talking to Malcolm, had been his worst call by far. Very bad. Very, very bad. We can also understand, although these people deserve each other. And maybe his dumb comment after talking to Malcolm wasn't just about the terrorist boat people deal. And we have to thank Donald for unearthing all these terrorists we had no idea were terrorists, like entire countries full of them. And then there's film director Asghar Fahadi, whose 2012 Best Foreign Language Oscar winner The Separation, we thought was a sensitive, humane film in the spirit of the Iranian film industry in recent years. But no, Obviously a piece of subliminal terrorist agitprop. As for Hardy is up for the same award again this year, a film called The Salesman, but thanks to Donald's alert but not alarmness, he won't be allowed to attend. His presence would obviously be a threat to all US armed citizens. Unless the so-called judges, stupid people, very stupid people, a threat to democracy, sympathise with whole nations of terrorists and can't terrorist cells be insidious. Thank goodness, or maybe thank God in this case, the US have exposed a major true blue Aussie terrorist. It refused a visa for Fred Nile. Who would have thought? 
Although many might say he's been terrorising anyone to the left of Donald Trump or the poor for years. Finally, True Blue Aussie's most pressing matter this year. No, not homeless ferals making life uncomfortable for the comfortable on their way to enjoy the tennis and obviously pay their tributes to the working class site handed to the elite by a socialist state government, nor crime running riot because all these 12-year-olds aren't locked up for life. 12-year-old ferals, no doubt. No, back where we started. Malcolm. Just as fossils are the answer to the problems of fossils, the road to riches for those homeless ferals and criminal ferals and lazy avaricious workers and non-workers generally is so simple. Just make sure their caring employers don't pay tax. Which does, by the way, again, beg a certain question. And the Flinders Street dystopia transforms like a blooming rose through the tending of the caring business class into a national utopia. 2017, onward and upward. Good afternoon. Well worth waiting for. That was Mr Kevin Healy. Camp Anarchy is happening again this Labor Day long weekend, March 11th to 13th, at the gorgeous bush camp of Camp Eureka in Yarra Glen. Get out of the city, camp or stay in cabins, share delicious meals, sing along by the campfire and paddle in the creek. Over the weekend there will be a program of workshops and skill shares. Childcare is provided and costs are kept to a minimum. Anyone interested in anarchist ideas is welcome. To find out more information, go to campanarchy.org. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. Rodrigo Duterte took office as the President of the Philippines on the 30th of June last year. As part of his campaigning, he vowed to solve drugs, criminality and corruption in three to six months. I'm speaking with trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy. Peter, how would you judge his record so far? Last Wednesday, President Duterte ordered the uh, suspension of his war on drugs, which has killed over 7,000 people in the Philippines since July last year. This happened because of a scandal uh, under which uh, a Korean businessman had been kidnapped for ransom by the anti-drug police, some of them, and naturally killed, even though the ransom was paid, he was strangled. and, And all of this happened inside the police headquarters at Camp Krame in Manila. When this scandal broke, he did this. However, at the same time, he said that he would create another police and perhaps military agency to continue with the war on drugs. So I really don't think that's going to change. You can kill 7,000 poor people, but once you kill one rich person, things have to change. Well, I think that uh, especially South Korea is a significant investor in the Philippines, and therefore, yes, I think that's the case. So long as you're killing Filipinos, no one else can uh, complain. But I saw on the television President Duterte abjectly apologising to the, Phili- to the uh, South Korean ambassador. So, uh, yeah, that's what's happened. Police are acknowledging that they, they themselves are responsible for about 2,500 of those deaths and then they're blaming vigilantes for the majority of them. However, there's a lot of suspicion that the vigilantes are really also police and uh, military because most people in the Philippines know that the drug business is a huge business and it's really operated by corrupt officials. 
including in the police and military. Well, if you're going back to allowing the military to do what you've just said, you're going back to the Marcos era, aren't you? I don't think it's ever ended, uh, Jan. So, uh, yes, it's one of those uh, anomalous things in, in international perception. Yeah, everything changed when President Marcos was driven out of the country in 1986, but uh, in a way the, the actual methods of operation of the security agencies haven't changed much at all, all the way through. Although I think that this uh, war on drugs is a sort of huge expansion you know, of the use of uh, violence and uh, policy of impunity for any of these government agencies. Can you explain why he's so down on drugs? Personally, I can't, but I imagine that uh, in, in his own life experience, he's, he's seen a lot of damage from drugs. But also, uh, that that's might be a personal level, but I think at a sort of tactical or even strategic level, President Duterte would know that by attacking drugs, he's in a way attacking a certain group of corrupt commanders who he probably knows would never really support him in the long run. So maybe a political strategy, a very bloody one, but all, all the same, there is a political rationality behind it. And perhaps what's happened in this last week is a bit of an unfolding because he, of course, has ordered the arrest of a lot of police officers, senior ones, that could be connected to the kidnap and murder of the Korean businessman. Is there such a thing as drug rehabilitation in the Philippines? Yes, there is, but I think it would be, you'd have to say, it's massively underfunded. And there are hundreds of thousands of people now who are, you know, in inverted commas, surrendered have drug uh, users or drug dealers or peddlers to avoid being killed. And a lot of these are held in, in uh, makeshift places like sports stadiums and crammed into jails. And they say there's minimal, minimal uh, therapies available for them. What's the mood of the people in the Philippines about his move on drugs? Yeah, they're still quite popular. I'm not quite sure the latest actual polling figures, but they're probably still around the 60 to 70% approval for President's policies, including on the drugs. And that's a, a sign that, you know, in the poor communities, you know, the drug, as we've seen here in Australia with ICE, the drug uh, impact is, is really nasty. So that, um, there's, there's quite a lot of um, you know, physical and psychological damage to whole families and whole communities from a sort of lawless atmosphere. One section of the community in the Philippines is outspoken against what is happening, and that's the Catholic Church. Would you have expected that? Mm, yes, I, I would. First of all, the Catholic Church is, uh, in the Philippines has uh, always objected to presidential behaviour, which they think is sort of immoral in, in fairly restrictive terms. So, you know, President Estrada, who was in power from 1998 to 2000, he was a womanising, gambling, swearing guy, perhaps not as quite as colourful as Duterte, but in the same league, really. And the Catholic Church was very quick to condemn in this sort of wowserish way. But I think this time the Catholic Church is under a more serious level by really condemning the murder of uh, out of hand of all of these people, poor people. And uh, they're not the only ones... Uh, Speaking out, of course, but basically the whole human rights movement in the Philippines has condemned and repeatedly held protests about the drug war. 
and uh, this would reach into the trade union movement and uh, the national democratic movement itself, uh, which sees you know the really severe danger of uh, authoritarian and uh, military government. And as you you know the, the echo of martial law is so obvious to them. So yeah, there's been a lot of uh, condemnation, but you know they're against the tide of uh, public opinion still, and <clears throat> they're also against a, a president who's uh, extremely determined to, to do what he wants. Yet on the other hand, the Catholic Church is opposed to what the government's doing, re-contraception and women's health, reproductive health. Yes, you see that some of them mix up things. Well, it's completely consistent for the Catholic Church and the Philippines especially to oppose any spending on contraception and uh, family planning, anything like that. But it's, uh, it's also very broadly held in the Philippines that something must be done to help people control the number of children that are born and uh, to have uh, you know, healthy lives for their children. So, um, you know, it's, especially when you have a sort of non-Catholic president, you get a bit of a boost in funding in this direction when this controversy comes up. But because now the atmosphere around President Duterte is loaded so heavily because of the war on drugs, it's all a bit sharper. But I think, you know, it's, it's probably very, very welcome, again, in the Philippines broadly, that these, this uh, program about family planning is, is available and getting funding. What about killings of other people in the Philippines? It's not just the people, drug users or drug pushers. What about the, the peasant leaders and the union unionists? What's happening in that sphere? Yes, well, I think that um, there was... Uh, sense of respite when uh, President Duterte came to power in, in relation to the killing of uh, Indigenous leaders and uh, peasant leaders and trade unionists and lawyers and journalists. But I think that that's slipping away now. The, uh, the entire package, you know, of uh, ceasefire, peace talks, release of political prisoners and uh, suspension of this... Uh, counterinsurgency warfare, which is really about killing civilian activists. That's all unravelling now. So um, it's you know, so distressing, and it has been for a long time that in the Philippines, you know, in any year, you would find 100-plus of these sort of cases. And in some years, it was many hundreds in the last decade. And yet there was, there was virtually no international media reporting or outrage expressed. And even from the Catholic Church in the Philippines, very little comment. But uh, in this last few weeks, these cases have started to escalate. The, the peace talks had a round in January, so only a few weeks ago, and uh, there was a, a high emphasis from the National Democratic Front side about the release of political prisoners. And um, the uh, government doesn't seem to have done anything even though it undertook to do so. February 2, the, the uh, National Democratic Front side said that the unilateral ceasefire from the side of the New People's Army would cease on uh, the 10th of February at midnight. On um, last Saturday, President Duterte said that the peace talks were off and he was ordering his delegation to, to come home. Uh, he ordered the end of the ceasefire as well from the government forces side. So I think we're having a rapid change of temperature uh, just right now in this last few days. The reports I'm seeing of uh, 
killings of uh, Indigenous leaders coming out of Mindanao and also from Negros farmer leaders. So there's, there's a bit of a reign of terror actually happening in Negros. And um, as well as that, in, in Mindanao there's been more concerted attempts by the government army to attack units of the New People's Army and to also suppress organisations and Indigenous organisations. You know, I'm predicting now that things will somehow rather spiral out of order. And are the main issues land and land use? I think the, the issue is that uh, relatively isolated areas have had Indigenous people retreat to them, but now mining companies and logging companies are penetrating inland and seeking to extract resources, so yes, about that. One other thing that's happened is that uh, the Secretary for Environment and Natural Resources last Thursday, her name is Gina Lopez, she announced the expansion of another group of mines, mine operations this time, including the Australian <coughs> gold and copper mine at the Gipio in Luzon. However, she, she said that um, the company was entitled to appeal uh, this finding, and <clears throat> while they were appealing, that they could continue operations. So again, it's a little bit of a grey area, but that's it. That's a sort of a that type of thing is a response to, you know, really sustained decade-long protests by indigenous communities to protect their land. And how did she outline her concerns? Principally, saying that the pollution of the rivers is destroying agriculture and communities that the companies have divided communities rather than helped unite them, and uh, that she preferred ecotourism to mining operations. So these are the elements, and you see ecotourism could just as much um, remove communities from their traditional lands as mining. So, you know, this is sort of welcome that the mining is being pulled back. Really, it is so welcome. But just exactly where the government will head after that may not be so pro-people. So Oceana Gold continues? For now. But their share price has been taken a hit from this. But uh, yes, they've got a lot of political muscle in the Philippines and uh, we'll both see if the campaign can end up stopping the mine. When she said there's closing 23 mines and suspending another five, it must be a huge areas of the Philippines being under extraction. I think there's huge areas under exploration. But uh, what's, what's concerning is that the these river, river valleys and mountain areas and water catchments where these uh, mines are. Some of the ones she stopped are in Zambales province in the western side of Luzon and most of the rest of them are in Mindanao. Yeah. And they're just the ones she's going to close? Yep, yep. So social justice needs a lot to be desired in the Philippines. Yes, that's actually a, a nation in deep crisis, Jan, and that's uh, uh, struggling so hard to find a way out of this crisis. And uh, right now we can see the conflict is very intense and likely to get more intense. And what's the US likely to do about this? It's uh, President Trump's attitude is so hard to predict because Trump and uh, Duterte haven't had a meeting. They've had one friendly phone call. But I think that President Trump's attitude to China will really end up putting the squeeze on the Philippines to, you know, completely cooperate with US military strategy. That's one of the scariest scenarios in the whole world. Well, that he won't force a military confrontation. And how long before we're likely to see something like that? No. Only a few months, I think we'll know. 
One good thing, I think, is that in the United States, the military itself will be putting the brakes on, and uh, it takes a while for the military to organise itself or anything in any case. But it, it's only a matter of months before it becomes clear. And we have to remember that there's quite a number of US bases in the Philippines. Yes, but President Duterte is talking about you know removing them. So, yeah, right now, Subic Bay and quite a few others are important locations for the US to locate people, uh, forces, and also material. And so it's a very important in their own strategy for any containment of China. So people must be very concerned in the Philippines. I think so. I think so. But unfortunately, I think the war on drugs has uh, dominated the, mm. the public discussion about Duterte. And um, uh, his, his initial uh, rapprochement with China has been you know, calming. But I think the Trump factor is still to come into play. OK, thanks, Peter. You're welcome, Jen. Bye-bye. And that's Peter Murphy from Sydney talking about um, a very dire situation developing in the Philippines. And Peter is a, a trade union and human rights activist focusing mainly on the Philippines, but not not always, but it's one place that he is focused on. Not a good look at all. 427 at 3CR. <laughs> Melbourne says no to Netanyahu. This month, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will visit Australia as a guest of the Turnbull government. Netanyahu is an outspoken racist who has devoted his political career to the oppression of Palestinians and the creation of an apartheid regime throughout occupied Palestine. Join us at the State Library on Wednesday the 22nd of February at 6pm as Melbourne says no to Netanyahu. Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network is a 3CR supporter. This Friday, the 10th of February, at a venue yet to be advised, the Q Society of Australia is holding a fundraising $150 per head dinner to support their legal defence fund. The Campaign Against Racism and Fascism will be organising a welcoming committee for the guests outside the venue. And Debbie Brennan is one of the organisers of CAF. I spoke to Deborah yesterday and asked her how long this organisation, the Q Society, has been amongst us. I, I believe they were founded somewhere around 2010. We've certainly been aware of them since they hosted the uh, neo-Nazi Geert Wilders um, from the Freedom Party in the Netherlands, Netherlands, and that was about possibly three or four years ago. So is an Australia-wide organisation now? Apparently. See, their, their political arm is the Australian Liberty Alliance, and listeners might recognise that name. That, that was launched about a year and a bit ago nationally to stand in the federal election. If people really want to know more about the politics of the Q Society, they only need to look at the platform of the Australian Liberty Alliance. So the Q Society itself focuses strictly on Muslims, on their Islamophobia, but actually their agenda is broader, and you can see that through the Australian Liberty Alliance. We'll stay with the Q Society for a moment. 
this fundraising event that they're, they're planning, it's to raise funds for the Legal Defence Fund. Mm. What are they defending? Yes, well, being the Islamophobes that they are, they've been running a, um, a campaign against halal certification, as Islamophobes do. They, they just zero in on one specific thing, and that is it. So in their campaign against halal certification, that, which was thoroughly racist, the result of that is that the organization called the Halal Certification Authority are taking them to court on defamation. So basically this dinner is a fundraiser to raise money to defend the two Q Society leaders who are charged with defamation. Do you know what they said about Halal Certification? Basically, I don't know what they specifically said, but I would imagine what they said is what is said out there by Islamophobes, which is that it's there to, to launder money for Islamic terrorism. Okay, well, let's look at some of the, the members of the Q Society, the ones that we know about. Can you talk about who you know are members of the Q Society? I wouldn't know members by name except for the, the two leaders who are up on those defamation charges, one being Debbie Robinson and the other being Kiralee Smith. But what about the ones who are speaking at that dinner, who will be speaking? At the Melbourne dinner? Yes. Yes. Well, Corey Bernardi, Senator from South Australia, and George Christensen, from Queensland, this is really getting to the nub of the matter because the fact that the Q Society has invited these two members of Parliament to speak and that these members of Parliament have accepted this, that's what should be ringing alarm bells to us. So we certainly know what Corey Bernardi and George Christensen stand for. George Christensen, by the way, has been a very popular speaker at Reclaim Australia rallies. They are not only known for their rabid Islamophobia, but they are also very open about their attitudes toward women, toward LGBTIQ people, toward Aboriginal people, unions, and climate change. So, these are two examples, two high-profile examples of the broad agenda of the far right of which the Q Society is a part. So as you said before, they're the political, the Australian Liberty Alliance. Can you talk more, more about, you've mentioned there a couple of the issues that those two men adhere to. It goes further than that, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So the Australian Liberty Alliance is actually the political arm of the Q Society. Bernardi and Christensen are very vocal about issues that the Australian Liberty Alliance actually have in their platform. So, for example, and, and I'll just focus on Bernardi and Christensen because their views are more out there. They are very much into the so-called traditional family values. And, in fact, Bernardi has denounced single mothers 
as being responsible for, in his words, boys' criminality and girls' promiscuity. They certainly do not favor sole parenting mothers having a parenting allowance. They also pretty much defend domestic violence. And in fact, it's quite shocking to, to consider that Bernardi has actually said that putting a woman in a headlock is justifiable and that um, sometimes a woman just has to be put in her place in a relationship. They're certainly against abortion rights. And listeners would probably remember more recently the big far-right campaign against the Safe Schools program. The Safe Schools program is that anti-bullying program defending young queers in school. And, in fact, Bernardi was demonizing that as well as marriage equality as being uh, leading to polygamy and bestiality. So, I mean, these are the people who are the invited key speakers at the Q Society function. Bernardi and Christensen are also anti-union, and they've both voted, for example, for the Australian Building and Construction Commission, which is set up to shackle unionists. They oppose Aboriginal land rights or any sorts of special programs for First Nations people as being privileged. And, of course, they deny the science around climate change. So it's that whole package of the far right. This is what we are counteracting against. That is the campaign against racism and fascism, which is organizing a counteraction on Friday night at that dinner. This is what we are counteracting. And have these groups, do they have ties with other fascist organizations overseas? Yes, they they do. Well, I mentioned before that the Q Society hosted the neo-Nazi Geert Wilders from the Netherlands. The Australia Liberty Alliance is also connected, as is the Q Society, to the International Stop the Islamization of Nations, as it's called. And that international organization has ties with the fascist English Defense League. So, you know, their connections are pretty, pretty dangerous. And it's becoming worldwide now the the turn to the far right and the the other issue that if people don't stand up to this there's going to be trouble look you're you're absolutely right on that jan and we we only need to look at the um you know the recent developments since the election of trump in the united states and so the connections of these groups in australia to the far right and the neo-nazi organizations of the United States and certainly of Europe because we're watching what's happening in Europe now as well. It's like kind of a the, the prospect of a coalescing going ahead um, internationally and it, it, it's just it's just so dangerous. We're already seeing the effects of that in the United States. We see that since Trump's election that there have been physical assaults on people in the streets, whether because they're Asian or they appear to be from the Middle East or they are LGBTIQ, black American, and so on. So it's really becoming a daily danger for 
most of us for whatever groups we may fit into. And particularly in the US, the people are fighting back. That is really just so heartening to see, yes. Since the day of the election, it's been nonstop, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And that's, that's the thing that not only should we take heart in, but we should be emulating. And, and we are, you know. We saw it with the Women's March in Melbourne and in cities around Australia, which were huge, and, were, and with the Invasion Day mobilization up to 50,000 people in Melbourne and so on. So we are organizing and campaign against racism and fascism, which has been around for nearly two years now, is a united front of organizations and individuals coming from all of these quarters of society, which are now open targets for the far right and the neo-Nazis. So it's that unity that we keep building. And again, that's what Friday is about. Well, this fundraising $150 per head dinner is going to be held, we don't know where. Why don't we know? Well, we don't know because they don't want us to know. And so they know the, the power of counteracting. And so they want to hold this thing in secret because they know that we can stop them. But where are they advertising the fact that they are having a dinner? In other words, how did you find out about it? Yes, okay. On the internet. So they put out, you know, an event for tickets, an even bright event for tickets. That's certainly one way they're going about it, and I'm sure they've got their own little networks as well. All right, well, how are you going to let people know when you do find out where it's being held? What listeners should do is stay in touch with Campaign Against Racism and Fascism's Facebook because we are keeping information up to date there. People can also SMS the following number that they can be on the contact phone list and that number is 0422. 726-843, that's 0422-726-843. And also, CARF is saying that for those without transportation to wherever it may be, meet at 5 p.m. this Friday, the 10th of February, at Flinders Street Station Steps so that we can travel together. We may not know the venue the actual day so you know just stay tuned and just one other thing I'll mention as well is anybody who would like to be part of the organizing for the Friday CARF action is most welcome to come to CARF's next organizing meeting which is tomorrow night Tuesday at Trades Hall at 6 p.m. so there are various ways that people can get involved. And just to emphasise, Debbie, that this will be a peaceful protest. We are always disciplined in our actions. So we certainly were there to oppose them. We're there to be loud and disrupt their function. But we are disciplined. We look after each other. And 
if there is any violence that comes from their side, we do defend ourselves, but we do that together. That's why the discipline is a big word in our, in our lexicon. Can you give your Facebook address? Yes, look for Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Hope to see you on Friday. Yes, it's, uh, it will be, I'm sure the cops are going to be out there in absolute force and who knows what creatures from their side, the Q Society side, are going to be there. So we've got to be ready for anything. Well, I'm quite sure the police will have plenty of forward notice of where it's going to be. Yeah. You mightn't, but they will. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Thanks, Debbie. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jan. Thanks again, as always. And that's Debbie Brennan from the group Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. And if you're in roundabout this area of the world, that Trades Hall meeting is tonight at 6pm. They're meeting, organising meeting. And the text number, the phone number is 0422 726 843. And it's for reasons such as this to inform the community about what's going on that 3CR is so, so important. And to keep publicising events such as this and keeping people informed, we need people to also join us and become subscribers. So people are still here today. We'll be on next week as well. More of a push next week. But if you're listening now and you feel that you would like to become a member of 3CR, it's a wonderful feeling, 9419 8377. And I'll give the more details of that demo next Friday. We have a message on our computer, so I'll do that a bit later. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR. Still supporting musicians and writers, and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Now the third and final part of my interview with US-born journalist and broadcaster Chance Warland. In earlier parts of the interview, he spoke about life in the US, Germany and Colombia and South Korea. And today he'll continue with South Korea and then about his time here in Melbourne. Is it a country with 
a great number of older people and people not having children, so there's less of the younger generation. Yeah, it's a, it's a typical, um, well, I guess what would be the term, like a Western-style democracy where as people get more educated and they have to sacrifice things to get good jobs and go to school and do all those things, they have less time to have a family. And maybe they don't want to have a family because they want to focus on their careers. Downside of all that? The downside of all that is basically everything <laughs> because – the older generations in South Korea have done so much work. South Korea after the Korean War was like the poorest country in the world. Like maybe there was another one, but like it's always quoted as like it was the poorest country after the Korean War. Everything was destroyed. The people who were in South Korea at that time sacrificed so much, not only just to try to provide for their children, but to rebuild their country, which had been through so many things. People forget, at least I think people do. Before the Korean War, Korea was um, a protectorate of, of, of Japan. I think a lot of people will be maybe offended by that word, but that's that's kind of how it's described. You know, Japan took over the country, and then you've got the the comfort women, the comfort women thing. Yeah, sure, which I've reported on a lot in the past. And so, before the Korean War, there are lots of problems going on, and then afterwards, well, they have a civil war and everything is destroyed, and then you have the dictatorship that's installed in the north, and then in the south. To be fair, they had their share of dictators as well, and they had their human rights abuses, and they still have issues with this. But the people who were there, the South Koreans in that country at that time, worked so hard and they sacrificed so much. And now they're really old and their children are not taking care of them. The country is not taking care of them. They have some things in place. You know, there's them. They can receive a certain amount of money each month, but it, it's so low. And the poverty rate for elder South Koreans, so 65 and older men and women in South Korea, is 50%. So 50% of anyone who's 65 or older is at or below the poverty line. And you see this. You see older people picking up cardboard. They have these like sort of like a, I think it's a rickshaw where you like pull someone. But like that's a positive thing. They have like a rickshaw that's just full of like recyclables because they can go somewhere and turn that in for some money. Are they abandoned by their families or not? Yes and no. I mean, I don't want to generalize, but basically what it is, is it's um, probably a mixture of people who didn't have children, people whose children have more or less just um, one way or the other not supported them financially. Or to be fair, what has been highlighted a lot is that a lot of older Koreans, either because of pride or because they don't want to take money away from their children because they want to give them the best, they maybe don't tell their children, what's going on. They don't say that they need money or maybe they, they'd say, I won't accept money, things like that. So there are a lot of different narratives out there. I'm not going to try to paint a picture, but the end result is that 50% of all older people in South Korea are not doing very well. And one of the most advanced, richest nations with a very strong military, you know, very strong ties to the United States, there's just so much poverty. And it's to people who have worked very hard. So it's you know not that you want to cast poverty on anybody, but if there was one person who you'd think maybe deserved a helping hand would be a 67-year-old man or woman who have worked their entire lives to rebuild an entire country. That's um, really true there. Um, but it, in all fairness to my broadcaster, I was allowed to report that from time to time. So they don't deny that. You mentioned the, the South Korean military there. What about the U.S. military and the people's thoughts about the number of troops that are still in the South Korea and are they in one place or are there are there bases around South Korea? It's kind of like well, I guess, you know, to use an example here in Australia, like you have Darwin, you know, right? Like there are some Marines there and it's not like I just like walk down the street here in Melbourne and I'd like see some American military. But if I did, you're like, Oh, okay, well there's American military in Australia. But maybe times like 
25 because in South Korea, they have specific uh, camps, you know, specific areas where troops are stationed. They also will have uh, training exercises. There also will be different reasons why troops would leave or uh, go somewhere else. But more or less, there are different sections where there have been troops for a very long time. And they have, um, what do they call them, like camp towns? So around like a military base, there'll be prostitution. There will be um, like Western style restaurants. There will be places where basically young men and women who are serving abroad can just kind of waste their money to to have a good time, you know? So there's bars and lots of other things. And, you know, so I think it's very typical. I lived in Germany. So obviously the United States still has a very large presence in Germany and Western Europe. But in South Korea, um, it's obviously a little different for, for so many reasons. Um, but I guess the thing that I want to say here is that it is changing in that there's a big base, Yongsan base in Seoul, that's been there for, for a very long time, and they're moving. They keep pushing it back, but more or less in the next couple of years, you can expect that the entire base will be gone and they'll be moving outside of the city. So that whole area will be reclaimed. I don't know if um, there's been talk about making like a park or selling it off for, for business because it's a very hip area where a lot of things could go on. You mean the South Korean government is pushing the U.S.? further out? I think it's more fair to say the US might just be okay with moving out. I think there's, if I remember correctly, and this is not something I focused on a lot of the time. It's not something I covered. So I apologize if I get anything wrong. But I believe the United States has actually been of the two parties, the one that's been wanting to stick to timelines more and the South Korean government has been delaying things. So they were supposed to have a transfer of like military command to the South Korean uh, government. And it's always been like delayed the last couple times. And it's because the South Korean government delays it. But like I said, it's a very complicated issue. It's not something that I particularly focus on a lot of the time, because I usually will deal with more current relations problems with North Korea, as opposed to the giant military infrastructure that exists there. But another issue with this to, to bring Trump back into the conversation, unfortunately, is that the United States pays for a lot of its military there. Um, South Korea pays for a lot of it as well. I believe the last I heard, it's like around half, like half the costs are covered by South Korea. But as an American, I'm definitely interested in American troops not being in South Korea, but also not not as paying for them. So if they're going to be there, I think the South Korean government, as one of the richest countries in the world, should pick up that bill. That's something that I personally believe in. And so once again, this goes back to me, like I don't call myself a journalist. I call myself like a reporter or broadcaster because I like to to tell people how I feel about it. And there are a lot of Koreans who who feel similarly. There are a lot of Koreans who would like to have the United States out. And there are a lot of people who have business interests who maybe have restaurants that are catered to American troops who, who don't want that. Or maybe they are afraid of what ha will happen with North Korea, which I think is a legitimate fear. And so they want them to stay. So there's just so many competing arguments going on. It, it's, just, it's just so complicated. It's hard to really even explain it. You have to like read a book. You were saying South Korea is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, yet the people aren't sharing in that. Or the majority of people don't share in that wealth. That's a hard thing to respond to. When you're talking about the old age and you're talking about people getting $5, sure. equivalent of $5. It's hard to – because once again, there's there's just so much going on. So, Is it people in high-tech IT who are getting paid well? Well, generally, once again, without having like a, a business background and, and focusing too much on that, I would say that generally the, the standard of living in Korea is very high, especially compared to some of its neighbors for the vast majority of the people living in there. Obviously, they could get more from their government, but I don't, I don't know that South Korea necessarily needs to stand out among like other OECD countries, among other developed countries as a country where the people are particularly being exploited. I think that these types of things, certainly 
from the United States. I could go on and on about the exploitation of people in the United States. Where in South Korea, they have a nationalized healthcare system. So I was paying monthly because my employer didn't give me healthcare, unfortunately, but I paid monthly to have the same insurance that a Korean would. Now, it didn't cover everything. And I believe if I would have got hit by a car or something, I would have had a lot of medical bills. But compared to the United States, you have full coverage sometimes and you get you get screwed over. So there are a lot of things going on in South Korea that I think are very positive. They have the best public transportation I've ever seen in my entire life. They have great health care. Everything is accessible mostly as long as you can afford, you know, afford it. They don't have like a, a class system compared to a lot of places. But then again, they do sometimes because it's it's just based on how much money you have or your lifestyle. So I would say that I, I don't think they're particularly exploited more than, than other developed nations. But of course, that means they have plenty that they can improve on. A long way from South Korea to Melbourne. How did that happen? I'll be 31 very shortly. At the time, when I came here two months ago, when you were 31 as an American, you can no longer do a work at work and holiday visa. I have been told by a few different people, I haven't looked into it, that that changed like right as I came here. I think they might have extended it to 35. But whether or not they did, after living in Germany and South Korea and Colombia, I wanted to live in an English-speaking country because I have learned Spanish, I've learned German, and I've learned Korean. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be perfectly fluent in any of those languages, but I have studied them, and you know, I, I can speak them comfortably. At least when I meet someone from one of those countries, I can say hello and you know, how are you, and how much I love your country. And I wanted to not have to do that again. That was fine with me not to do that again. And also. Um, when I lived in Colombia, it gave me a great opportunity to learn what it was like living in a developing country as opposed to Germany or South Korea or the United States. And I wanted that experience here. I wanted to, to see what it was like living in a country where I could theoretically have access to anything. I could go anywhere, talk to anybody. There was no confusion. As long as I was able to fit in wherever I was, you know, whatever that meant, I could just be Australian. I certainly, if, if you see me on the street, you wouldn't think that I was an Australian. So that has been interesting, yeah. How are those past two months been for you? It's funny you ask that because um, a lot of people from South Korea, including my girlfriend, they've asked me like, how have things been? And, and I don't mean to be negative, but the first thing I always tell them is that Australia does not have a new country smell. When I got to Germany, it felt like someone slapped me. Like I think my face literally went red and I felt a little bit numb, right? When I went to Colombia, similar thing in a different way, but it was like, whoa, I'm in Colombia. Like, wow. When I went to South Korea, I was like, holy crap. Like, you know, everybody has a smartphone. Like there's, there's, there's a train or a bus everywhere. Like, this is amazing. Like, wow, I'm in a new place. When I got to Australia, I was like, oh, I'm completely comfortable here. Nothing is really shocking me. It feels like a mix between the US and Germany. You guys definitely have a more European influence though. what I'm used to growing up in the States. And there's so much, you know, American culture and stuff here. Just watch TV. Half of the ads are for American television shows. And yeah, everyone, everyone here is friendly and everyone speaks English. So when it comes to the pure excitement of going to a new country, I experienced less of that once I got to Australia. But at the same time, I think that I've been able to do more and feel much more comfortable here in only two months than I ever did in anywhere else that I live for the same reasons that I just mentioned. Yeah. And what would you like to do in the field of journalism or radio? Got involved here at the uh, 3CR. How did you get involved here? So I, um, I think I just sent an email. How did you know it was about like us? Two, two months ago. You know, I started watching some Australian news, watching videos, maybe see stuff like that. I started listening to podcasts, things like that. And I went on a website, I think it's like the Community Broadcasting Network, and I just sent an email to 3CR because it was on the list. And I heard back from the training coordinator once I got here and I came in and I've been helping out here at the station here and there. I was hoping to get more involved than I have been. I think that perhaps because 
when you have to come to the station here, usually there's so many things you have to do. You have to go through training. You know, people have to feel confident in your on-air skills and all that stuff. And when I first came, as someone who's been working in broadcasting for so long, I was able to sort of immediately jump past all that. But then the issue with me that takes more time is that I have to acclimate myself to the format of 3CR because it's not commercial radio. It's not reporting all these things I've been doing for, for years. So and in one way, I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage because I have to kind of like change my thought process to match myself to the station where I definitely do have an advantage because I have all this experience. But in a way, it's also kind of working against me a little bit where someone else might come here, have no radio experience so they can kind of start fresh. And what about the politics of the station? What have you learned from that? Oh, well, it's been great. I mean, uh, I, I do a desk shift. During my uh, desk shift, there's a show that talks about uh, Aboriginal issues. And I've been able to talk to the hosts when they come in and just have a few conversations when we're just sitting in the front room and stuff like that. And one of the remarks I made was that in the United States, like I certainly know about general aspects of the history of Native American people, obviously the unfortunate events that took place that allowed my country to exist the way it does, you know, like a white European living there now. But no one really talks about it. I learned about it in school, but I learned about the Greeks in school too. Like I don't particularly think about Greek issues that often, from, you know, from the past. And so it's just something that I knew, but it wasn't really top of mind. But here in Australia, of course, on 3CR, because you have programming dedicated to it, but even just listening to podcasts from national broadcasters or reading the newspapers and stuff, Aboriginal issues are in the news constantly. So I thought that was a really refreshing change. I thought that was great. But then speaking with a few of the hosts here, I was told that while that might be the case, they explained to me that they felt that the Aboriginal people in Australia are further behind some of the native people in the United States, because even though none of the treaties that the government ever issued were like, you know, they're like basically torn up like a few years later, they at least had the treaties, they had that process where from what I've heard here, and what I've read is that that really never started in Australia, they just kind of pushed people off the land, or they said, Oh, it's uninhabited. And they're like, we don't have to write a treaty because no one's here. Mm -hmm. So it's been very interesting for me to learn how those cases are similar, yet also very different. And you're staying for a while? Yeah, that was the plan. That's the, so I, a year um, is the working holiday thing. Um, I never moved here for the prospect of like long-term employment or anything like that. I have a friend that I went to college with and he moved here like six years ago. And um, within the last year, he took his test and he's a citizen now. So it's funny because like I'll never be a citizen of South Korea no matter how long I live there. I didn't even get permanent residency working for a broadcaster for three years. It's very, very restricted. Will that change when you marry a South Korean? Yeah, yeah. So I would get an F visa. But even then, it's like the first three or six years, it's like a temporary one. And then only after a while do I get like a permanent one. So I think if we were married for like 10 years and then we got divorced, I think I could still hold on to my visa. But that's changed because like I have a friend who married a Korean before I knew him because he'd been there for so long. So maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, he married a Korean. They got divorced, but it was um, amicable. He was able to keep his visa. He's Canadian. And now if he marries a foreigner, that person would get a visa as well. So they've, they've changed that because I think too many of my friend John exist. And I think they didn't like that. So now you get a provisional visa, I think at least for the first cycles, which I think are three-year cycles, the first two or so. And then you'd get like a full visa. So... But yeah, once I get married, <laughs> everything should be fine. That That's an issue in, in, in South Korea. You can't be employed unless you have a visa. And they're very hesitant to sponsor visas for Western foreigners unless you're an English teacher, uh, which is a big industry there, 
or you're just like professional grade. So like if you're like, you know, if you have a PhD and you're like a teacher of chemistry or if you're like an engineer and you could work for like Samsung or LG or something like that. But just like your your middle normal average person, it's very difficult to get a job in South Korea unless you teach English. And that's the last part of a, a very long interview I did with Chance Warland about life living in five countries, the U.S., Germany, Colombia, South Korea, and finally, Australia. Melbourne says no to Netanyahu. This month, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will visit Australia as a guest of the Turnbull government. Netanyahu is an outspoken racist who has devoted his political career to the oppression of Palestinians and the creation of an apartheid regime throughout occupied Palestine. Join us at the State Library on Wednesday the 22nd of February at 6pm as Melbourne says no to Netanyahu. Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network is a 3CR supporter. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And that's a scarf to wear at the demonstration against Netanyahu. Netanyahu. And it's to Tuesday home time for Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. And today... Bob, we begin with a survey of Australian and New Zealand shoppers. They're voicing their concerns not only about GM ingredients in their food, but also antibiotics and hormones and MSG. That's quite a lot. The recent Nielsen Global Health and Ingredient Sentiment Survey covered the world, but also especially Australia and New Zealand shopper food preferences. There are a number of interesting um, points in the survey and the uh, figures they show. From our perspective at Gene Ethics, of course, finding that 44% of Australians and 49% of New Zealanders are um, actively trying to avoid genetically manipulated ingredients is really good news because, of course, we've got our GM-free shopping list in which we are trying to promote those processed food products that carry a label saying not genetically manipulated. There's good support there and the shopping list is available on the GM Free Australia Alliance website if anyone wants to download it. The other headline items in the survey were that um, Australians and New Zealanders are both very, very concerned also. In fact, their number one concern is antibiotics and hormones in animal products, around 60% in both countries. And it's reflecting a broad public awareness of the untreatable superbugs that are now showing up in our hospitals where some of these microorganisms are untreatable even by the full range of antibiotics available to doctors. People are dying from these uh, illnesses that uh, previously would have been treatable. And a lot of the problem is that antibiotics and hormones are still being misused in agriculture 
especially abroad, but now, of course, food is a global marketplace. So we are getting, as well as local product, imported products that have been animal products that have been produced using particularly antibiotics as growth promotants. In the intensive agriculture systems, it's necessary to use these synthetic drugs, hormones and antibiotics in order to just to keep the animals alive. And I think we need to change our ways. Farming has to change. It has to clean up its act and stop using uh, synthetic hormones and antibiotics in its production systems because they are having spin-offs to human health as well. And I just wonder how many of those 60% of people think it might be a, a better idea not to eat animal products? Well, I expect that too. Of course, we vegetarians are still a small percentage of the population, uh, around 5%, I think. But I think uh, as people come to realise that the production of animal products from the point of view of the use of fossil fuels, water and the environment generally, the impost from animal production is just so high that uh, really uh, we should be looking to get our proteins in other ways. What's the problem with MSG? Well, uh, people have quite substantial allergic reactions to it. My partner, for instance, gets um, very severe headaches which um, come on within minutes of her consuming anything uh, with MSG in it. So we're always asking at any restaurant we go to, are you sure you haven't got MSG in your products? But a lot of the prepared uh, sources, particularly in Chinese and other Asian foods, do contain MSG. So you're always at risk in those situations. People can have heart problems, palpitations, flushing, a whole range of different responses, some of which are very severe. It's just time that uh, Food Stands Australia New Zealand, which is supposed to be looking out for our food health in a precautionary way, should be taking this problem seriously because at the moment they have an application from the food industry application number 1136 to be specific, in which the applicant is proposing that new MSG products coming into the food supply should not be labelled even on the product that you buy in the supermarket. It's totally unacceptable. People do need to be protected from this food additive, which is really quite widely used and does have uh, serious allergic reaction problems. What is MSG? Monosodium glutamate, used extensively as a, as a taste enhancer, as I said, particularly in Chinese food. What is it made of? It's uh, a chemical called monosodium glutamate. It's okay. uh, synthetic, added for taste purposes, not for any other very substantial purposes. And, of course, it's to supposedly enhance the natural flavours of food, but I think particularly with what we know about the addition of too much salt to food, that uh, a lot of these extra ingredients that are supposed to make food nicer to, to eat could be left out and we could just get the natural flavour of the wonderful range of fruits, vegetables and grains that we have already available to us when they're unrefined and unenhanced by uh, synthetic chemicals. So in a sense, is it synthetic chemical salt or is it more than People that? People who use it liken it to, um, to salt, yeah, to sodium, really... It's just a cultural tradition and it's hard to see why, particularly restaurants and um, the sources that we buy, if we buy made-up sources, need to contain it at all. Looking at a study in Tasmania of a farmer, 
the pro-GM lobby maintains their crops are superior in yields to conventional farming. We see plenty of that. What's the story of this one farmer in Tasmania and can that be replicated with other farmers in Tasmania and other places as well? Well, we do know that the yields of uh, genetically manipulated canola are around about the same as conventional varieties. The industries making all sorts of claims about increased yield from the better management of weeds, but the actual crops themselves don't produce any better. This particular Tasmanian farmer, of course, had a dream run, and whereas uh, normally farmers are getting, on average, about 1.3 tonnes per hectare of canola from their farms, sometimes up to two or a bit more, uh, this particular guy under very unusual climate circumstances last season, got 6.2 tonnes. You'd be laughing. It's to be celebrated, but of course it's out of the ordinary. We can't always count on getting those high yields, but the thing to say about yields, of course, is that uh, while they might um, benefit the farmer, overall the food supply is adequate to feed all the people in the world, and the industry's constant banging on about we need high yields, we need high yields, simply ignores the fact that there is enough food to feed everybody if it were distributed properly and that uh, most countries waste around 30 to 40 percent of all the foods that's produced. In our case it's by being left in the fridge too long and dumped or um, not bought at the market or unsuitable for the supermarket shelves if it's got a ding in it or anything and so a huge amount of fruit and vegetables in particular are dumped seen as not fit to be marketed and we waste over 30% of food in Australia. In other countries it's often infrastructure problems without adequate uh, refrigeration and other storage facilities. Many of the countries that uh, do sometimes suffer from um, hunger, malnutrition and famine are actually uh, suffering from a lack of infrastructure to look after the uh, foods that they actually produce and do need assistance. But overall, we can say that yield is not the issue. It's about better management of the food supply globally. Across the nation to Western Australia and bribes are being offered to canola farmers there to buy Roundup-tolerant GM canola seed. This is not a new thing, is it? No, it's not. The uh, GM seed industry has been struggling to market its product and uh, they were previously offering three bags if you bought two. But again, this year, we've got a couple of new varieties of uh, genetically manipulated Roundup-ready canola entering the marketplace. And as a sweetener for this year, the Pacific Seeds, who are marketing the product, are offering $100 cash back per bag on the Roundup-tolerant GM canola seed. So farmers who buy this will, of course, be able to spray for then at higher doses with Roundup, which is now tagged as a probable human carcinogen. They're also, of course, desiccating their crops uh, late in the season just before harvest to get rid of the foliage. We now see around the world that Roundup residues are being identified in the food supply and in the people who eat them. Where is this seed coming from, this new breeds? Well, they're being developed under Monsanto's production and marketing arrangements. Are they imported? Mostly would be produced in Australia because, of course, we're also producing seed for export overseas. And with Bayer and Monsanto getting together, 
I think one of the big areas will be in our mostly GM-free environment that uh, the companies will increasingly start producing their GM seed here in Australia for export from us into North and South America where these things are grown mostly. Well, they might be able to export it to North and South America, but I don't think Europe are too keen on having GM canola seed. Canola. No, definitely not. Well, the new the new figures on that just released by the Australian Oil Seeds Federation show the benefit or the merit for Australia of remaining GM-free. We have earned in the past since 2006 up to $70 per tonne for the exports of GM-free canola into Europe. We got that market from Canada uh, when their crop went to almost 100% GM and the Europeans said, no way are we buying your product. So we're the main suppliers of canola into Europe. We can supply that market at the premium of, at the moment, about $40 a tonne because we are GM-free, over 90% GM-free. That's what the European shoppers want, both uh, food shoppers and shoppers for cosmetics which use glycerol from GM canola are saying loud and clear to our producers, stay GM free, we'll continue to pay a good premium to you to supply us and we don't want the Canadian product. Uh, even for biofuels where they could use either GM or GM free, the GM free is favoured because one of the sweetness to that supply chain is that they take the remnants after the oil is extracted from the canola and use it for animal feed and of course that's a way into the food supply which none of the Europeans want so GM canola is not wanted even in the biofuel production system to any great extent. If they produce the animal feed they in turn export it overseas. You mentioned ago that the Roundup active ingredient glyphosate is probably a human carcinogen and that came in 2015 from the WHO. It takes a while but now a few countries and one state in the US are getting on board and banning it. Well that's right, yes, indeed. Um, France has banned the sale of Roundup or glyphosate based herbicides which are mostly marketed as Roundup. They also have, a, have other um, brand names as well. So they won't be sold in French garden centres any longer. Farmers will, for the time being at least, be able to continue to use them, but uh, we'll see how that plays out. Malta has banned Roundup sales. Even more interestingly, because it's a very, very large market, the biggest food producer in the USA, California, the state of California, has wanted to label the Roundup herbicide for sale in uh, supermarkets and so on as the probable human carcinogen. They were challenged in the American court system by Monsanto, which is the major producer worldwide of Roundup. And uh, the court decision just, uh, just ca came down saying that Californian officials can legally require Roundup to be labelled. And we expect that very soon the governor will pass laws to um, require Roundup's active ingredient, anything with glyphosate in it, to be labelled there as a probable human carcinogen. Now, this is good news, I think, for the general public who need to be very warned in a very active way that uh, when they're handling this stuff, there are health consequences, not only 
it's not only a carcinogen but a teratogen for instance human fetuses can be adversely affected by this according to some research other toxic aspects of uh, glyphosate are now becoming recognized in the scientific literature as well so this is good news what about here in australia though well yes our australian pesticides and veterinary medicines authority held a uh, little consultation which closed very conveniently for them on the 30th of december they were seeking comments about their proposal not to reconsider the toxicity or the uh, carcinogenicity of Roundup in Australia and at the moment they're considering the submissions including our own which of course said that they should thoroughly review and reconsider all aspects of the toxicity of Roundup, the formulations containing glyphosate because it's in all our supermarkets, the 1% formulation, the 40% formulation that's used on our farms and uh, is used extensively in parks, on roadsides, everywhere else in our community without proper protection for the people who use it and for the people whose land it's sprayed on who are coming into contact with it in public places. None of these people are adequately protected at the moment, whereas the Pesticides Authority uh, says, well, we've got a good label on it, it gives a warning, it's not good enough, it's totally inadequate, it doesn't flag that this stuff is truly a toxic substance and that uh, its use should be reduced and eliminated, particularly, by, I think, by local councils, which uh, let their operatives spray it very liberally around our um, schools, playgrounds and uh, roadsides. You just wonder whether the people doing this are told exactly the problems that could be caused by these sprays? Well, I think the problem really is that the disinformation over the years has led people to um, treat it. It was said to be safer than salt, you know, and of course the argument against the World Health Organization's findings that it is a probable human carcinogen. We have to remember that the World Health Organization is a very conservative body. Sure, indeed, and its expert committee likewise. But we now see that Monsanto has been uh, running its PR machine at top gear for the last two years since this judgment came down. Even in the scientific literature, we've now got um, people engaged by Monsanto writing papers extensively saying um, the IARC, the, the World Health, Health Organization judgment about this is wrong. The other evidence is overwhelming. There's a consensus that there's nothing wrong with glyphosate or with Roundup herbicides. Nothing should be done about it. And that's the view that is shared now by our pesticides authority. Uh, it's not good enough and uh, we'll continue to put the heat on them as the new evidence emerges. And there has been, uh, for instance, a new study just published in January saying that glyphosate has it at even much, much lower levels than are allowed by the uh, regulatory authorities impacts on liver function in experimental animals. This should be a wake-up call to have a really thorough look at this and not accept the public relations that have been around for the last 40 years, leading people falsely into um, complacency about the safety of this, this herbicide and, of course, the tens of thousands of other older chemicals which are not being reviewed because uh, Barnaby Joyce decided that the review and re-registration program that should be in place and uh, 
reviewing all our agricultural chemicals should be wiped. When he came into government, that new uh, review process never got off the ground, was um, reversed by Barnaby Joyce as the Agriculture Minister in the Turnbull government. It's simply not good enough. Our regulators letting us down. Human health and animal health are both at risk. We need something done about Roundup and all those older chemicals that have not been properly assessed. Data showing that many of them are far more toxic than the labels indicate. Tell us about the Tasmanian clean-up of rogue GM canola that took 10 years. Well, that was, of course, done at taxpayer expense after the um, field trials there went uh, pear-shaped in 1999. We have now another example in North America of just how insidious all this uh, stuff can be. Oregon's Agriculture Department has become concerned that Oregon growers and landowners, this is uh, in the state just uh, north of California, are going to incur very long-term management costs as a result of the contamination of grass seed in that state. They've got a billion-dollar industry in their grass seed production, and uh, as a result of a grass field trial um, some years ago in, the, in Oregon that's now out, it's in their grass seed supply, People are starting to say, of course, we don't want your grass seed because it's got um, Roundup Ready genes in it. It's genetically engineered. We don't want to be importing it into our country. Now the regulators in the US are saying to the company that's responsible for this, this is going to be too big a job for you. You can stop spending the, the money that you've been spending on uh, looking after this or trying to eradicate. Not successfully. This stuff's out of control we're going to be taking over, the taxpayer will be trying to recall what is beyond recall, and that is genetic contamination of grass, of weeds, of the seed supply in the seed bowl of the USA. It's just another example of how things can go dreadfully wrong. To their credit, Tasmania persevered, did get themselves back to GM-free, and they're not likely to give up that uh, status anytime soon. There's a consensus among the political parties and the farmers of Tasmania that GM-free is the way to be. On a much smaller scale, what's happening with Steve Marsh in Western Australia? Well, we haven't heard much news, actually. Steve's still on his farm, though he lost the case at the beginning of last year. Monsanto and uh, the farmer that it backed, Michael Baxter, who is the still-growing GM canola on his place, are still deciding what they're going to do to Steve Marsh, who owns something like three-quarters of a million dollars as a result of the case. It's just wait and see. Unfortunately, because these things are going on behind the scenes, we're not really aware of uh, just how how Steve is ultimately going to be um, either evicted from his place because uh, he can't pay the costs, or Monsanto will pick up the tab because, of course... They indemnified the GM grower at the beginning of the case and that's why they were unwilling to negotiate a settlement for the $85,000 that Steve was owed before the case went to court and incurred all those court costs. It's a sorry picture. It should, as Baxter claimed, have been settled beforehand. His claim was, oh, we could have just had a beer and chatted over the back fence. No, Monsanto wanted to go to court, wanted to... um, do Steve's genuine claim down. 
We don't know. It's left them in limbo. He and uh, Steve and Sue, though, are still on their place, still farming, have regained their um, organic status. So that's good news out of that uh, rather awful debacle that has gone on now for seven years. And thanks to Bob Help, <coughs> Bob Phelps, rather. Sorry about that. Who is the director of the Gene Ethics Network? And Bob has a segment on this program once a month to keep us up to date on issues to do with genetically modified organisms. That's Bob Phelps. Macular degeneration is Australia's leading cause of blindness and severe vision loss. If you're over 50, you're at risk. Macular Disease Foundation Australia will present a free seminar on macular degeneration in Essendon on Friday 17th February at 10am. You're invited to attend and learn how to reduce your risk and what to do if you've been diagnosed. Attendees will receive a free information kit and will be able to view the latest range of low vision aids and technologies. Bookings are essential please phone 1800 709 to reserve your place. That's 1800 709 a 3CR supporter. Yarra City Council is celebrating International Women's Day on the 8th of March with a week of community events and activities to highlight and recognise the achievements of women. Two key events are the presentation of the Inspirational Women of Yarra Award, Morning Tea and Award Ceremony and Yarra's International Women's Day Business Luncheon. The Council is also hosting a range of exciting activities including women's panel discussions, art and photographic exhibitions, sombra and yoga classes, women's only swim session and mums and bubs story time. Check out yarracity.vic.gov.au or phone 9205555 for more information. City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. The 18th National Sustainable Living Festival is on again from the 4th to the 28th of February 2017. As dangerous climate change continues to threaten the things we care about, a sustainable lifestyle and restoring a safe climate is more important than ever. Featuring leading forums, artworks, talks, exhibitions and a new online festival program, it's time to ramp up the message and protect the things you care about. Event applications and full details at slf.org.au. A 3CR supporter. And it's coming up to 5.30 and in a moment we'll be hearing about politics, Malaysian style. But before that, just a reminder that next week it will be full on for the subscriber drive which used to be called the listener sponsor drive and I'll be asking regular listeners to put their hands in their pockets and make sure that this wonderful radio station which has been going over 40 years now continues to be strength and strength and strength so that's next week so you can do it now if you like 94198377 get in early but next week will be the the main one so I do hope that people will do the right thing by this wonderful radio station and this is a a reminder of um, Friday. An expensive fundraiser is being held in Melbourne to pay for the far right's continued campaigns in Australia against halal, Muslims and the left. 
with guest speakers Corey Bernardi and George Christensen. We're calling on everyone to come and protest on February 10th to make their fundraiser a failure. Let the racist rich know they'll always lose in Melbourne. Check out the Facebook event page at Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. That's facebook.com slash campaign ARF or text 0422 726 843 for details. Solidarity trumps hatred. Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is a 3CR supporter. For over two years, the Prime Minister of Malaysia, Najib Razak, has shrugged off allegations around his government's multi-billion dollar sovereign wealth fund scandal. But it would appear that his ability to continue this stance is again threatened. An 110-page claim has been filed in a Kuala Lumpur court by Tony Pua, an MP of the Democratic Action Party, which the party sees as the last legal resort to sue Najib to seek justice on behalf of Malaysians in the hope that the guilty will be punished. The claim is set for mention in court on the 16th of February. Kian Wong is a Malaysian journalist working in Sydney and I spoke to him yesterday and asked him first to outline the claim contained in the civil lawsuit against Najib and his government. Well, basically, the politics of this huge scandal that is now, you know, called the 1MDB case, which is centred on that sovereign wealth fund, 1MDB, which the government, federal government has total control over, and the head of that fund is the Prime Minister of Malaysia, around whom many, many allegations, including ones brought by the US Department of Justice, has centred on the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Najib, uh, how allegedly, literally billions of US dollars have disappeared, some of which have appeared without much accountability in the Prime Minister's own personal bank accounts. None of these allegations have really been properly addressed, whether in public forum or in court cases. I mean, that's really the backdrop to the continuing prosecution of this case in the court of public opinion by leading opposition members of parliament in Malaysia, like Tony Poir, who has now brought this civil court case trying to test the Malaysian courts to see if these allegations can be addressed and um, to find out what has happened to the allegedly billions of uh, dollars or ringgit that have gone missing. But it's also, hasn't it been a refusal by authorities in Malaysia to take this case on? Well, that's partly the problem with this 1MDB saga, where America sort of um, echoed the Malaysian leading example, where last year Malaysia, over the controversy of this case, the Prime Minister basically removed the Attorney General, the previous Attorney General, who was allegedly setting up a case to pursue the people behind this scandal, put in place a new attorney general and uh, has been subsequently been clearing out also the anti-corruption authorities in Malaysia, 
putting in basically officials compliant with the Prime Minister. And the Attorney General in Malaysia has basically declared that there is no case to answer by the Prime Minister or any of his cronies over this um, case of the missing billions of dollars. So you could say that the federal opposition, uh, in many ways stymied by this scandal, are just trying whatever cards they have left in their pack, uh, including trying to file this lawsuit within the Malaysian courts, which, uh, as an institution in themselves, have been called into question by many people, including the opposition, over whether they have any uh, independence or ability to hear this case. And how long before we know whether they're going to take this case on? Well, we don't know at this stage whether it will begin to get the mention in the court uh, list and whether the case will proceed. Of course, a lot of people in Malaysia are deeply cynical as to where this case will go or if it goes anywhere at all, given that many such cases that are brought against the government, especially this government of uh, Prime Minister Najib, tend to go nowhere. And so what happens usually is that uh, cases, on the other hand, whether on alleged sedition or any sort of criticism of the government that it, and the government then sues its critics in the court system, those cases tend to seem to be fast-tracked and get through the system fairly quickly. These sorts of cases which are against the government tend to languish and um, perhaps even disappear over a period of time. So you could read these types of cases that are brought by the opposition against government more as a political tactic by the opposition to try and keep an issue alive in a public context, but also keep legal pressure on the government, even though some might argue um, this pressure, you know, the effectiveness of it might be quite debatable and maybe it's going to be a waste of time. Let's have a bit of history of this one MDB. When was it set up and why? Basically, it was formerly a state investment vehicle of Trungganu State, which is actually an oil-rich state on the eastern seaboard of the Malaysian Peninsula. With Prime Minister Najib coming to power in 2009, several years ago, he basically took over this vehicle and rebranded and changed it into One Malaysia Development and what 1MDB was supposed to do was to harness the wealth that was coming in from natural gas, oil resources, and invest it for the benefit for the country as a whole, as Malaysia as a whole, as opposed to just being originally a state-focused investment vehicle. So it's become a national uh, investment vehicle to benefit uh, all Malaysians. However, what is happened in the last uh, year and a half is that there's been a lot of exposés led by whistleblower sites, the SarahReport.org, as well as um, prosecuted in the international media like the Wall Street Journal, which have found scandalous irregularities in how much money seems to have disappeared under this 1MDB banner. 
and how some of that money that was supposed to be the country's turned up over the course of 2012-2013 in the Prime Minister's uh, personal bank accounts. And what is really added to the scandal is that the Prime Minister and his government and his cronies keep maintaining what turns out to be a web of untruths or false information claiming and keep changing the explanation as to where that money has come from and how that money has been used. I mean, they claimed at one stage that the money that was found was a donation from an anonymous uh, Saudi prince. And it's since turned out uh, some ministers have admitted, well, you know, nothing wrong with it coming from uh, somewhere else and it was... Um, you know, government money, and uh, it was actually money to be used for winning the bitterly contested 2013 general elections, which the government won in terms of seats, but lost in terms of the popular vote to the opposition. So this wealth fund has really been, in many ways, at the center, the scandal that has kept Prime Minister Najib's government in power. And it's been seen as um, symptomatic of the way he stays in power and uh, nobles and silences his critics through what are alleged to be grand-scale corruption. It's even managed to unite former bitter foes like the previous veteran Prime Minister, Dr. Mahathir Muhammad, and uh, his long-standing uh, nemesis, Anwar Ibrahim, who now languishes in jail. And even those two have um, uh, come together in uh, a broader opposition to this Prime Minister. Can you explain a bit more on what's happening in the US with their court case? Well, it's actually subject to a great deal of debate now, partly because, as we know with the American administration uh, system, whenever a new president and his team comes in, or her team comes in, the whole upper echelons of all these federal departments, including the U.S. Department of Justice, would have leadership changes. And right now, of course, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice uh, nominee for Attorney General is the hotly contentious senator from the South, Jeff Sessions, who's been accused of everything from uh, harboring you know, racist impulses to all, all sorts of terrible things against American civil rights and so on. And now it will be interesting to see at least for Malaysia and a lot of countries which have apparently you know, breached human rights standards whether um, a new leadership at the U.S. Department of Justice may well stall the civil suit and investigation that has been ongoing that was announced with much fanfare last year under the previous Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, uh, who was President Obama's uh, appointee to that position, who basically announced and prosecuted the case and called the 1MDB scandal a huge kleptocracy scandal of so much money being allegedly defrauded by people named in that civil suit against the Malaysian people. And there is an Australian connection through the AFP? 
There are several Australian connections, including um, one of the main Malaysian banks in the centre of this scandal, Arab Malaysian Bank, or AmBank as they call it. A big shareholder in it is uh, Australia's ANZ Bank. And ANZ Bank leaders have uh, been rotating through this Malaysian Bank's board of directors as well. So they've all had a stake, if you like, in this particular bank's shady dealings. And so it's been interesting to see also how um, some of these alleged uh, ill-gotten gains of this scandal have been invested by some of the secondary peripheral players in this scandal in apparently all sorts of real estate deals and uh, penthouses and holiday homes uh, across Australia's key well-known cities. Is that where the AFP have found? Well, we don't know actually how much they have or haven't found in terms of uh, where, where that's at. I mean, it appears that these investigations are ongoing. There has already been, for instance, a fair bit of scandal over some um, Malaysian government-owned statutory bodies that have been caught uh, investing in doing property deals in cities like Melbourne, which uh, they were not supposed to do, and how there have been alleged uh, millions of dollars in kickbacks in some of these property deals to certain individuals within these Malaysian statutory bodies. So there appears to be a bunch of issues with shady movements of Malaysian money into Australia since Australia is seen as a close, welcoming neighbour for investments by various uh, allegedly corrupt Malaysian officials. And there are investigations in other countries too. I think one is neighbouring Singapore and also into Europe. Yes, that's right. Um, Singapore has charged several people now uh, linked to this 1MDB scandal. And investigations continue and uh, various statements have been made by legal officials, which in many ways are very negative on the Malaysian 1MDB wealth fund as well as government officials, Malaysian government officials linked to it in jurisdictions and countries like Switzerland, in Britain, in in the United States, of course, uh, and in Singapore. And there is expectation that there may be uh, even some lawsuits to be filed uh, in places elsewhere in Europe as well as in Australia. But for Australia, we haven't seen anything happen yet on that score. But certainly, yes, in Europe and in the United States, along with Singapore, there have been a lot of legal pursuits of basically where a lot of this money has disappeared to and how many of these financial centers are very worried about uh, alleged money laundering, uh, which, of course, uh, these jurisdictions are very careful to try and guard against because of its links to organized crime. And why do you believe there's been no action here in Australia? I think at this stage it becomes a bit more difficult to pursue, partly because different arms of the scandal, if you like, have been doing a lot of these investments on an individual basis without 
any sort of direct linkage to the troubled uh, 1MDB wealth fund. So if there were cases to be uh, brought against these 1MDB-linked individuals, I think you wouldn't have as clear-cut a sort of paper trail. From what I understand, at least with uh, lawyers in Malaysia over this, the Australian cases are continuing to be investigated, but they appear to be a smaller quantum than the uh, millions and allegedly billions that have gone astray in places like the United States and in Europe. Looking at this fund, is it similar to what we have here in Australia? I'm not quite sure if it's called a wealth fund, but that was sort of money put aside for pensions for civil servants in in the future. Is that the sort of same thing in Malaysia where that money was supposed to go for the people? Yes, I mean, that was the stated grand purpose when 1MDB was launched, that this wealth fund would invest the earnings and proceeds of uh, the country's earnings from minerals and resources into infrastructure and services that would benefit all Malaysians. So, for instance, there are a few building sites in Malaysia right now which still uh, sport uh, hoardings on the outside of these building sites which proclaim them to be um, 1MDB projects. Looking at the situation in Malaysia in terms of the ability to dissent from the government, the freedom to express people's feelings about the government and the society. Is it a fact that many young people are turning away from the country and feeling that there's no hope for them there? There appears to be certainly a growing number of young people, especially those who, I mean, who are very globalised and exposed to the world beyond Malaysia, and Malaysia, of course, has huge numbers of young Malaysians who do college and even high school abroad. Of course, um, Australia has long been a big uh, recipient of many of these young Malaysians, and many of them now on social media and in other venues often talk about their deep disappointment in how the country is going and to some extent a cynicism about what change they can back and push forward and how limited it all seems. And, you know, some of this is also appearing now, which is sort of unprecedented, of uh, young working-class urban uh, Malay youth who really have been the stated beneficiaries of the government's pro-Malay policies, they too have um, become quite disillusioned and have tried to move and to attempt to earn a living in places like Australia, but also in Singapore, to earn more money, partly because um, there has been a huge income squeeze in Malaysia, especially in the urban areas where the cost of living is very high, but wages have remained stagnant for quite some time. And uh, the currency has also been losing value uh, in the past uh, two years since the 
commodity price bust. And what sort of work do they get in Australia? There have been a lot of uh, young people here who try to stay on after their university degrees. So they would try and work in these uh, apprentice white-collar jobs. But also there are a lot of uh, young high school graduate Malaysians who try and uh, work here, sometimes illegally, on fruit-picking farms. Uh, I mean, there's been a big scandal about that, not just about Malaysians caught working illegally, but also many others uh, from elsewhere around the world. And some of them also have been coming here to work in the booming construction sites of Sydney and Melbourne, have tried to claim political asylum because of what they argue has been political persecution by the current Malaysian government over their support for the opposition. But while their cases are being considered, even though their cases may be a bit weak and probably will be rejected, they are given temporary visas that allow them to work. And so they fully exploit that by working legally on construction sites and other blue-collar, semi-skilled jobs, earning decent money, where some of them tell me uh, they can send about half of what they earn every month back to Malaysia. And because the Malaysian currency is fairly weak, what the amount of money they can send back to their parents and families are often the same equivalent per month that, say, a manager in a white-collar job could earn in Malaysia. But while you've got ones who might be paid properly, I'd imagine that there are others who are not paid properly. That's right. There's been a great deal of exploitation going on, partly due to the desperation of some of these young Malaysians to try and secure any sort of job. Several of them, of course, have been caught up in the immigration raids and of course uh, there are apparently scores of young Malaysians uh, detained for instance at Sydney's uh, Villawood Detention Centre Immigration Centre awaiting deportation because they've been caught coming into Australia being scammed by uh, shady so-called labour recruiting agents to work on Australian farms have uh, not only lost their money to be brought in here almost like indentured laborers, but also have found that they don't even have the visas to work here legally, so they then get caught in the immigration things. Are they penalised when they go home? I suspect they would be, but uh, they would certainly be penalised by Australia in that they can't return here for periods of up to five years. And what happens to those who remain in Malaysia who put their head up and complain about the situation? The government of Najib Razak, now that the gaze of uh, a previously previous um, Obama administration uh, officials who have been making supportive noises in Malaysia for human rights defenders, uh, now that the gaze has sort of waned, are finding it even more tricky because generally critics of the Malaysian government find themselves facing all sorts of vexatious sort of lawsuits claiming that they are seditious or, you know, slandering Malaysian officials. I mean, so what, what has really happened is that uh, critics of 
the Malaysian government tend to find themselves dragged through the courts or being harassed by police. And the penalties? Well, the penalties have been pretty grave. If you look at the case of uh, Anwar Ibrahim, for instance, the long-standing opposition leader that basically won the popular vote against the current prime minister in the 2013 elections, yet uh, soon afterwards found himself facing yet another charge over alleged sodomy uh, in which he was convicted and sent to jail. So he still languishes in jail now. And of course, when he goes to jail, uh, he loses his parliamentary seat and is also barred from standing again for elections for a period of about five years. So it really comes at a high cost for many of these opposition parliamentarians. Right now, there's nearly a score of um, parliamentarians and civil society activists and human rights lawyers who are all facing charges of alleged sedition. And uh, these come with jail terms, of course. And uh, for parliamentarians, this would also mean if they were convicted of being disqualified, which is, of course, very handy to have uh, most of the leading opposition parliamentarians disqualified by the courts as you head into general elections, which are expected in the next year or so. So the only way maybe for his removal, Najib's removal, would be through foreign court? It would appear that way, and that's certainly what some Malaysians were expecting when they discovered the U.S. Department of Justice coming out so strongly in that civil suit in that press conference talking about a huge-scale kleptocracy defrauding the Malaysian people last year. There had been a lot of hope, but I think a lot of that hope is now tempered by the fact that you have a, uh, a new administration that may well do deals with allegedly corrupt you know, kleptocracies like Malaysia. What about the other countries? At this stage, the arrests and charges against uh, those linked to the 1MDB scandal in Singapore, make headlines in Malaysia. There is the ongoing Swiss investigations, as well as those in London. But um, nothing as strong as the charges or civil suit brought up by the US Department of Justice last year has uh, shown up yet. But I mean, many who oppose the Najib government uh, hope that something will turn up abroad because in some ways uh, many of the avenues to pursue against the Najib government in Malaysia through the court system seem to have stalled. And you've been listening to Kian Wong, who's a Malaysian journalist working in Sydney. That's just about all for me for today. I might go out with a song and coming up very soon, Done By Law. That's it for me. Bye for now.